0: You're listening to Rare Voices, the show that reveals the wisest path to a fulfilled life for patients with rare and orphan disorders. Brought to you by the people of OptimiCare. I'm your host, Donovan Quill. One of our guests we bring to you in this episode is a self described industry dinosaur. The reason he can make that claim is his longevity but also perhaps without knowing it, he can make that claim because of the long-term impact he has had on healthcare. In fact, if you look back over the past 30 years of pharmaceuticals, you can see his fingerprints on so many of the advancements we take for granted today. This dinosaur is Steve Ashlagi. He is a member of the board of directors of several pharma companies, including Acer, Biochrist, and Trevere, where he previously served as CEO. He is joined on this episode by his daughter Beth, a true advocate for rare and orphan disease. Beth currently serves as the Associate Director of Advocacy Relations for Gossamer Bio. Beth speaks with a wisdom that combines analytical insights with an abiding desire to advocate on behalf of patients. She has a unique ability to harvest what is most important to patients and fuse them into ongoing development for pharmaceutical companies. Of course, the insights that they offer are second to none. However, we wanted to bring you the two of them together for an even bigger reason. We wanted you to know about the depth of the legacy that a passion for serving patients can have. When that passion is more than just a saying, patient-first mentalities have the power to change our industry for years to come. So, Beth and Steve, while some of our listeners may know you and probably have followed some of your breadth of work over the years, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourselves, uh, talk about the past, what you do right now, and most importantly, what drew you to, to patients with rare and orphan conditions? And, you know, uh, I mean, let's go with, uh, let's start with ladies first. So, Beth, go ahead.
1: Oh, man, I was going to pass this one off to my dad first. Um, <laughs> Mm -hmm. No, I was really fortunate um, a few years ago to have an opportunity to work with a small biotech company in San Diego um, and really fell into a position that was actually a hybrid between business development and preclinical research. And it was in that role that I really saw the impact and the opportunities um, working with advocacy organizations and patients could really have a for a company, especially small companies. Um, And at that time we were developing therapeutics for incredibly rare diseases, uh, many indications that people probably haven't heard of. And so the value and the opportunities that I saw really took me down a path of rare disease advocacy. And so sometimes I will joke, I became an accidental advocate but I would not turn back uh, for anything. I've been so blessed and so fortunate to work with the rare disease community. And I think uh, it is true when people say, once you go rare, you never go back. Uh, I definitely feel like that. So I would say that's how I got my start Um, and then was fortunate enough to get work with my dad for the start of my career. So I'll pass it to him.
2: Thanks Beth. You know, I started a a couple of years before Beth actually, I got my first position in the pharmaceutical world in 1976, which I think technically makes me a true dinosaur in the business. And that was with big pharma, very traditional pharmaceuticals. And after 10 years of that, I was uh, like Beth fortunate. You know, I ended up going to work for Genentech. The end of 85, start of 86, when the first recombinant human growth hormone was launched. And that was really my first exposure dealing with a rare disease. Uh, orphan drug wasn't even a term that was used back then, but it was an entirely different world than Big Pharma. Um, I don't know who said it, but uh, I, I think the, the best quote I heard was that Big Pharma tries to make small benefits for many patients. And uh, in the rare disease world, you try to make huge benefits for a small number of patients. And it's a totally different culture, different interaction a uh, different relationship with both caregivers and, in many cases, the actual patients. And it was a different type of work than I had done before, and I found it much more rewarding, much more fulfilling. And you went to work every morning feeling like you could make a difference in somebody's life. And once you do that, it's very hard to, to go back and change, as Beth said. Since then, I've, I've stayed in the uh, orphan area for almost all of the things I've done. Uh, subsequently. uh, Most recently, I was with the same company Beth was with. We had three different products, all with ultra rare diseases, and we're developing several more in the rare disease area. I retired a couple of years ago. I currently serve on three different public boards. All three of those companies are rare disease companies, uh, Acer Therapeutics, Biochrist, and Trevere, uh, all of them working on things that we think are going to be meaningful to Improve the lives of patients, and I continue to be excited to be able to go to work, you know, and help those companies along the way.
0: Wonderful, and and you know, it's you, you both are so accomplished in, in what you've done, and Steve, you you know, the the long career that you've had, and Beth, even in the short amount of time that, that I've known you, and I, you know, I've seen the wonderful things you guys have done. And you know, I know we were talking earlier, Beth. Um, you know, one of the great things that that you get to do, you got to do at some point was work with your dad every day. Um, And since you guys are both so accomplished and it, you know, it seems like you have a lot of deep respect for each other. Describe what it was like to work alongside, um, alongside each other for, you know, those those few years and and what that meant to you.
1: It was definitely challenging. um, But I do think that having the opportunity to work with family, you know, it was so much fun. It was so... Educational, really, for me, my dad mentioned how many years of experience he does have in the industry, and being able to learn from him was invaluable, honestly, Um, and I think there are a lot of people who never have the opportunity, maybe most people um, don't have the opportunity to work with family, (laughs) some people uh, may choose not to work with family, you know, that may be an actual decision point on their end, but I have said it before, and I will always say it, that I am incredibly grateful and proud to have had the opportunity to work with him. We are very competitive as well, I will say. I think that we really drove each other to be better, and I I think the support that I received from him and some of the people around me was what really led me to be able to accomplish uh, some of the things I have in rare disease patient advocacy and and one of the most notable things I think that I really hang my hat on is the fact that I was able to you know, convince, uh, maybe is the right word, Dr. Christopher Austin at the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences at the NIH, um, that working in partnership with industry and advocacy was a benefit. And it was the new model and we had to be able to showcase that for people. Um, I didn't, was not necessarily expecting him to say yes. But uh, he did. And I was so incredibly grateful. And I think having the support of the company I was working for, uh, especially my dad's support, and also the true partnership that I had with the advocacy organization we partnered with um, really went a long way.
0: That's wonderful, Steve. Uh, same question. So you, you got to kind of watch Beth navigate through that and and work with her on a re- on a regular basis, and showed support to you know some of her accomplishments. But w- what's made you proud over over the over time?
2: Well, it was really fun. Um, anytime you get a chance to work with with family, I think it's uh, just kind of the icing on the cake if you're doing something you like anyway. And you know, it was tremendously, yeah, I think um, gratifying to see her kind of grow into the position. How quickly she picked things up. How dedicated she was, and frankly, I, I was stunned at how quickly she really got some things accomplished. Um, you know, getting you know a collaborative relationship done with the NIH is is not an easy task. A lot of people work and work and work and never get it done. And you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Beth, but I think you got two done in the fairly short period of time you were there. Uh, so it was easy for me, and it was fun for me. I think it did put some strains on Beth to be uh, to be honest about it uh, sometimes. You know, somebody who might, uh, an employee might not want to come into my office and tell me he thinks something's going wrong or uh, has a criticism or a suggestion that he or she is kind of uh, embarrassed to put on the table himself. They ended up in Beth's cube telling her what she needed to go tell her dad. And that uh, that put her in an awkward position at times, I'm sure. The one thing that, that was very unique about it, I mean, a lot of CEOs, you know, they send out a memo to the company and everybody tells tells them how great the memo was because nobody wants to tell me it was dumb. Well, if you've got a daughter in your company, you know, you've always got somebody willing to come into your office and tell you if you sent out a really dumb memo. So we had a no deficit. There Where a lot of companies just don't have that ability to get that candidate feedback that quickly.
0: Yeah, I can relate. I got to work with my dad and I was telling Beth this, I got to work with my dad for a number of years and, um, it was always, uh, nice for when he would call me and I'd say, you know, that was a kind of a bonehead move or maybe you shouldn't have sent that one. <laughs> so <laughs> it was a, uh, it was, it was that, that, that love that came with it and the, uh, the, the, the great dynamic you have when you have family that, that you, you work well with and trust. So.
2: I might've gotten those messages once. or <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was just relaying. I would, I would like to say I was just contributing to the feedback making sure we're all working best possible ways. I, um, I do think we also had a, a little bit of a unique situation though, uh, especially with the dynamics at the start of when I joined um, Retrofin at the time and uh, when my dad ultimately came in as the CEO, I think what we saw and some of the things and the experiences that we had in those two years, uh, most people won't see in a career that's 40 years long. Um, so sometimes I will joke, you know, I've been in advocacy for just over seven years, uh, going on 40, <laughs> um, feel like I can count those as dog years, but I also think that in that time, it was really clear to me how to advocate for patients and on behalf of patients in the best possible way and how to communicate in a way that is actually meaningful. And that has stayed with me, um, throughout my career and what I'm doing now, which is uh, working as an advocacy relations consultant uh, for a few different uh, rare disease companies in San Diego, California, as well as um, Gossamer Bio, which is rare disease, oncology, inflammation. Uh, I'm very happy uh, to be able to help building out those those teams now and contributing some of those learnings uh, to the work I'm doing there.
0: Yeah. And you certainly have that patient first mentality. And, you know, one of the things I've always, I've always tried to stay with that mantra is if you put the patient first and you do right by the patient, everything else will will work itself out. And, you know, I think with all all of the accomplishments you have and, and with what you're doing now, you know, I, I see that true uh, in you as well. And, you know, it's, it's awesome to see that. And it's awesome to, to understand, you know, your background, where, where you've come from and how that's been instilled in you over the years. So So looking at Steve, Steve, you've been in healthcare for years, you know, you're, you're self-proclaimed dinosaur, but we, we, but think about the things we've learned from, from dinosaurs and we've learned from studying dinosaurs about everything. Right. So in looking back, what do you think has changed for the better? And what do you think has changed for the worst? And then I'll have a follow-up question, you know, of, of, you know, what's remained constant that's, that's beautiful in this rare disease sector. Well, I think a lot more has changed for the better than changed for the worse. And
2: there have been massive changes. You know, when I think back about uh, starting in rare disease, patient organizations, advocacy organizations were fairly rare. And the ones that existed, you know, tend to be not particularly sophisticated at the time. And I think the evolution of patient groups, advocacy groups to support patients has been a, a huge change that has benefited, um, obviously, the patients, but it's also benefited industry and, at least to some minor extent, the regulatory process. Yeah, you know, we've also seen a tremendous change in focus on rare diseases. The Orphan Drug Act, I think, shined a light on rare diseases, and some of the companies, you know, like Genentech, like Genzyme, that you know at least started out in rare disease, you know, and made a success. Uh, business success out of developing therapies in rare disease really got other companies looking. And over a period of time, you've seen more and more companies take a real interest in rare disease. And as more companies have started working in it, there's been more success and success is built on success. So there's uh, increased emphasis, increased focus, increased expertise, uh, much more and better developed patient advocacy groups. And really, I I thought about this for a bit. The only thing I can really see that I I think has been a negative that's evolved over that period of time is kind of the advent of, you know, these massive PBMs in the system. You know, can create some barriers to access, some obstacles that you know didn't used to exist, or at least not to the extent that they can now. So I I think one of the, the things we still need to do in the future is get better at dealing with patient access. A lot of companies are good at it. I think we took a lot of pride in making sure patients had access to our therapies, but at the same time, it's, it's not a environment that's free of landmines. And I think the whole PBM insurance side of it is something we still need to get better at.
0: Well, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think that is the, uh, the, the one spot that has probably gotten worse for patients in you know, it's, it's getting that access to therapy and, and getting, getting through the, the PBM. Um, so Beth, look, looking at, you know, your, your career and, and what you've seen um, I'm going to ask you, you know, same question is, you know, w- what's kind of been the the most rewarding for you, the uh, scenario where things have gotten better. And I know, you know, your work with the NIH was, was, was key to, to some of the things you you know, your dad just said where, you know, we have a lot more focus on rare disease. We have a lot more focus from, uh, you know, uh, an industry standpoint, but what has kind of been that, that, that infliction point that you've seen as has really changed over the last, you know, seven years that you've been involved?
1: Absolutely. So first and foremost, I think industry's recognition of the importance of advocacy, uh, particularly in rare disease, but even beyond that, I do believe that Uh, some of the larger pharma companies are recognizing and starting to really value the importance of working with patients. I personally think that, you know, pharma, the industry as a whole has been a little bit uh, blinded by our successes and um, that's prevented the industry from continuing to improve and move forward. But with the improvements that have come in just access to information and with advocacy organizations taking on such a huge role in research and uh, drug development and really wanting to work with companies. I think that's been an amazing um, kind of transition. And I will say it was starting when I uh, started my career, but just to have seen it evolve in these past seven years has been incredible. I would agree with my dad. I do think that the PBMs are a huge issue and the experiences that I had and that I've been able to kind of accumulate when I was reflecting on these questions ahead of time is, is really the importance of industry communicating with patients and the two recognizing, you know, at the end of the day, there's the same goal. Uh, I think that that's also going to be impacted by kind of our current situation in the world uh, pandemic going on and that they're not separate entities. Uh, Patients and companies together can do so much more than they can do apart. And especially when you have partners like uh, the NIH as well, in terms of drug development, it's really a catalyst for change. And I am incredibly proud and grateful just to be a part of, uh, that catalyst.
0: Yeah. And, and we're, and you know, the, I know the communities that you work with are, are probably just as glad that you're part of that catalyst for them and you're, and you're in there driving that change and, and driving them to, to better themselves from an advocacy standpoint. So, you, you know, you mentioned the pandemic and, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the world we live in now, and, you know, we've, we, I know this comes up probably in every conversation anybody has anywhere. Um, so a lot of folks have used the word "unprecedented" to describe this past year. Um, do you guys think that that's a fitting description? And you know, w- what have you seen the impact of of this year been on healthcare and even drug development and you know the rare disease communities? I'll let either one of you jump in. Well, I think it's it's certainly unprecedented in our lifetime.
2: I mean, when when you read history, it's not the first pandemic that's been a, a threat to mankind. It's been going on for hundreds of years but it's certainly nothing like any of us have seen at least since the early 1900s the, the Spanish flu pandemic i mean the polio epidemic you know in the 40s and 50s was pretty significant too and even before that but nothing like this at least from from what i've been able to read a lot of companies and operations have adapted incredibly quickly i think the one area that you know maybe took the biggest hit you know, was folks who were working in the wet labs, where you, you couldn't just get on your computer and zoom from home. I mean, if you weren't in the lab, you weren't able to do your work. And I think a, a lot of research got set back six, eight, 10 months, simply because people were not able to get into their labs. The, the back office stuff, even the commercial stuff, most companies have been able to make adjustments and adapt and operate fairly effectively and efficiently. But the wet lab piece, you know, I think is, has been a real setback, at least in some companies and in some academic institutions.
1: And I would add on to that and say that I do also think there has been an impact on clinical trials and enrollment, um, especially. No company ever wants to put a patient in harm's way ever and recognizing that the rare disease community is especially vulnerable um, to COVID 19 and this pandemic uh, was a both you know, very large hurdle, I think, for many to overcome and figure out how to adapt around. But I also think that it did do just that it forced industry to adapt. And you see an emergence of these decentralized trials of telemedicine, home healthcare, um, mobile monitoring that is really going to impact the way we do clinical trials in the future, in my opinion, for the better. Uh, Making clinical trials more accessible, easier, more patient friendly, those are things that are going to result and have resulted from the pandemic and which I hope to see stay for good. And I do think that that is at least one benefit that we can take out of this.
2: That's a really good point. The one other piece, the, you know, kind of the, the approval process to get drugs to patients is the poor regulatory agencies have really noted, you know, as, you know, company after company has tried to get, you know, accelerated ability to get um, both therapeutics and vaccines out into the COVID um, therapeutic area, other areas, you know, just haven't had the resources that they used to have and it slowed some other things down. Hopefully that'll get back to normal, normal in the, the fairly near term.
0: Yeah. And we, we've, we've seen that directly here where, you know, we were able to be involved in some of the clinical trials that were going on and, and be part of that, that home health, just, dis- you know, direct to patient distribution. And we saw that, um, Assists some of our partners here with, you know, at Opti-Me Care with getting products to the patient, not having to do the uh, the site visit to go pick up their products. So, you know, there's definitely an opportunity there for for other companies to look at and, and go forward with that. And then we also saw it was able to, you know, as they did the telehealth, they were able to stay in, you know, in in a in a particular schedule to then um, go through the regulatory bodies and not try to push it faster. So we have seen, you know, some of that over the last, you know, the year of, of, of change. Um, and we've seen folks really, you know, come up with some, you know, brilliant answers to it. And we just hope it, that, that can, that can fester to other companies and, and, and make it a, a standard practice going forward. So, you know, and one of the things I, I look at it, you know, with, with, everything we do, um, you know, putting that patient first. And, you know, when you look at a lot of these companies and as Beth's, you know, been so eloquently said that industry is getting more in touch with the patient. What we've seen is, you know, a position that has kind of come up over the last few years called, you know, the patient services director, or they've created patient services around their product, not just get the product to the patient, deliver it, but, you know, have a a patient service uh, component to that treatment plan or that care plan. Um, Beth, what have you, uh, what have you seen as positives to that, that creating that patient services component to the, uh, to the rare disease patients?
1: Yeah, I think patient services, I'm glad to see it coming up more and more frequently in industry as a role. It is an incredibly important role because at the end of the day, industry is there to try to help people. That is the goal is to deliver and bring therapies and make them available and patient services, Really helps overcome some of those barriers that we mentioned with PBMs, with insurance companies, but also informs. And what I do think uh, is not necessarily recognized that often is that many companies have somebody internally that is working with insurance companies usually to try to minimize the number of barriers, to try to overcome some of these issues with coverage. And so when you have a patient services representative or individual or even team, collecting that information and and saying, hey, we have a bunch of patients on this insurance and they're having a really difficult time. That's information that the company then uses to try to improve all of those people's access. And I, I want to stress that really quite a bit because at the end of the day, my experience, no company would keep a medicine from somebody that really needed it and was doing their best to try to access it. Uh, I was really proud of that. And prior roles, I'm still proud of that. Uh, I think it is an obligation of healthcare. And I think it is on industry to be as transparent and possible in what we're doing and what we're trying to accomplish at the end of the day. I think the pharmaceutical industry has failed to educate the general public on what goes into drug development and commercialization. But I think that's getting better. And I think that's through uh, forums just like this, podcasts, information, communications. Uh, It is such a big aspect of advocacy that it will get better. And there are people who are trying to help.
0: Perfect. So as two people who are really invested in improving the lives of, of people with rare conditions, what do you think is a priority we need to address that, that maybe we haven't yet or something that we have to improve, really, really improve upon? And I know advocacy and I know, you know, the relationship that industry has, but what's one thing that we really, really need to sit down and address and, you know, let you guys run with that? Can I tack on kind of a
2: final thought to what Beth had been mentioning Absolutely. about services? Absolutely. You know, what she said is is very true. And I, I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier about the evolution, you know, of companies' approaches in the rare disease space. In in the early days, you know, our whole job was just get the pill or, or get the, the vial to the patient. And that's that's where our job ended. And as time has gone on, there's been an increasing awareness that Dealing with rare disease patients, and even in some of the the larger therapeutic areas, you know, getting the drug to the patient is only the first step in really providing the the right type of support to the patient. There's not just a physical component, there's an emotional, psychological, educational components. And as companies have figured out that patients do better when there's a more holistic approach taken, they put the resources into those patient services areas that I think is of benefit to the patient. And ultimately, it's helpful for the company, too, because patients understand their therapy better. They stay on their therapy longer. They're more compliant. By being more compliant, they get better results. It's a win-win for everybody when companies take that holistic approach. And we're seeing more and more of that over time. In terms of priorities, I have a hard time picking one Um, or even to call it a priority. I think there are a lot of opportunities right now. Um, In the U.S., I think we're in a better situation relative to rare diseases than in most countries. But there are opportunities. If I I step back and take a look at what's going on, the the level of knowledge, the expansion of knowledge on the basic science area is so massive in in the genomics and the cellular function areas that being able to translate all the basic science knowledge into development of therapeutics are gonna help patients. the translation isn't keeping up with the expansion of the basic science knowledge, at least from my perspective. And I think to the extent we can foster greater collaboration, you know, between academia, you know, and industry and drug development, I think there's an opportunity there. I think some of that is going on. Uh, it's, it's been a little bit surprising to me, but encouraging so much of the gene therapy work is coming out of university settings rather than out of companies. And I think that's been an eye opener for some pharma to realize how much good work can be done there and how much it would benefit them to partner with that academic side of of research.
1: And I would agree there are a number of priorities. You know, I had originally outlined seven, Uh, not to go through all seven. I understand priority is supposed to mean one, but I'm, I'm going to expand that into two, maybe, and say that access to medical care and healthcare is a huge issue. And it is a very transparent and very clear issue as we've seen through this pandemic. I also think that trust in the healthcare system, you know, we've seen a lot of communications, a lot of misinformation, a lot of uh, new information that, you know, people go back on, you see guidances changing back and forth. It's very hard to know where to go and who to go to. And prior to the pandemic, I was fortunate enough to speak at a strategic alliance conference. And the first slide I showed was that, you know, at that time, we were right behind Congress and the least trusted industry or group uh, in the United States. And that's a problem. And I think there is a lot of opportunity through advocacy and communication that can bridge that gap. But it is a huge gap that I've seen and that I think will hopefully um, improve over these next couple of years. And as you know, these medical advancements are really changing lives um, on just such a large scale.
0: So Beth, I'm just going to, I'm going to follow up with that. Cause I think you're, you're spot on and I, you know, and, and I'm sure you've done, had a lot of thought behind this. What can we do to build some of that trust? What are just some little small elements? And Steve, feel free to jump into, um, I think we've all been, you know, in the, in the, in this pharmaceutical healthcare sector that we all have our own ideas, but I'd love to hear yours, Beth.
1: I think the first thing that goes with trust is honesty. You know, so many companies don't want to communicate with, patients or patient groups because they're scared of, you know, providing false hope, or, you know, it being too early, and they don't want to, you know, promise something they can't deliver on. And they don't want, you know, their efforts to be seen in a way that is um, not how it was intended. But I think communicating early is just the way to overcome that. And so what I've seen is, especially in the preclinical stages, as well as the clinical, if there's something going on, or you have a question, ask it, but ask with the transparency of, hey, we want to understand we may or may not be able to do something, but we're looking to see if we can. You're the experts, can you help us? And never once have I received a negative response to that ever. Um, In fact, people, I've gotten more information from questions like that than I could have ever Dreamed of. Um, I've also been able to identify and really find those organizations that are accelerating and moving science and that are, you know, advocating for their communities on such a significant degree that those are the people I want to work with and, and partner with. And I know that if I if I make a misstep somewhere along the way, I have a relationship that they know it was not intentional. But if I don't have that relationship, and a company makes a misstep, you know, the repercussions are so much more severe. So if companies are listening, I would tell you, be open, be honest and communicate and reach out to the experts because they are a resource that is truly uh, unappreciated.
0: I could agree more and it's well said. Steve, anything to add to that?
2: Yeah, I, I would agree with Beth completely on kind of a little bit different level. You know, I think the the industry has been somewhat fragmented in its messaging to the public. You know, you've got our pharma, the the big guys. You've got Bio, which is kind of a cross-section, small, too big. You know, you've got some smaller groups within Bio that are the ultra-rare disease companies. You've got Nord, um, uh, some of the other big national patient advocacy groups, uh, Emocacus's group, um, trying to get some coordination of, communication of our story i think would be helpful because as it comes out now it it just seems to me to be somewhat fragmented and unless you're really in the industry and know the story already it's a little bit hard to digest
0: no thank you i, I agree i agree with that as well and you know i think we've all been in those side conversations with people who aren't in, in the industry and you know you get them to try to understand you know what some of the uh the national media is and then how you work with the small patient populations versus the large. So I couldn't agree more where, you know, there's a lot of misconception out there and, you know, that, that trust is, is the key to the success uh, and to our future. So, so speaking of that um, we're in our second, second season of our podcast and, you know, we've chosen the theme onward and what we mean by that is, you know, how can we look forward together? How can we look forward together as a, as a rare disease or a, you know, an orphan uh, disorder community um, so, given that theme, what do you what do you see um, is next for for the two of you and for patients with rare conditions? And you know, Beth, I'm going to start with you. I'll give ladies first again.
1: <laughs> Thanks. I um I love the theme of the year because I do think it's representative of some of the progress that's been made over the past couple of years, and that's going to continue to be made. I know I mentioned earlier some of the positives that have come out of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, especially in regards to decentralized clinical trials, um, more patient friendly protocols. And I truly believe that there are going to be much easier clinical trials moving forward. And that's going to be a benefit for patients and for companies and is really going to just help with the advancement of drug development as a whole. I also think moving kind of in the right direction and, and forward that advocacy organizations are being able to communicate and educate their communities in such a positive way and have such a positive impact. And I do think they're probably not thanked enough for the efforts. You know, at the end of the day, it's every it means everything for an advocacy group to see a, a drug get approved, it is life changing. And to all advocacy organizations, all advocates, all parents, I say, you know, keep the faith, keep moving onward, Um, go with the theme because industry is trying and we want to work together. And I can say that, um, at least in my role now, working as a consultant for a couple of different biotechs, uh, one in particular in San Diego, at Gossamer Bio that is really working to partner. And I've been fortunate enough to work with organizations like PHWare, and you know, this foundation, and there's so much that organizations can do, especially when you just can partner with each other. And so I think this coming together is the um, really the highlight of 2021, uh, at least as I see it moving forward. And I'm very, very proud to be a part of it and grateful to be on this podcast, helping uh, communicate that message and you know, continue communicating that message.-
2: Yeah, I would agree. I, I think good things are, are coming for many patients in the rare disease area. You know you have seen a, really a wave of progress uh, across many different disease areas over the last decade. I think, that wave is going to get bigger and it's going to come in faster and higher. Uh, the, the progress being made, as I, I think I mentioned, in the genomics area, in the cellular function area, in the personalized medicine area, you know, all bode really well for patients. And um, yeah, I look forward to seeing improving therapies and expanding the number of areas in which patients have access to therapies that can make them, their lives
0: better. Perfect. So as, as our guests listen, and if our guests want to you know, find anything more about you know, the two of you or what you're involved in, um, is, how, how do they do that? And is there anything that you'd like for, uh, for them to know um, about you or causes that you're involved in? Beth, you want to go first?
1: Yeah. So um, if anybody wants to learn more, uh, I am going to have my LinkedIn as well as my email uh, included uh, with the episode. So hopefully you'll find that in the episode notes. Um, I am also fortunate enough to be on the board of the Little Miss Hannah Foundation, and as I mentioned earlier, also consulting with Gossamer Bio, as well as some other companies in the San Diego area. Uh, I encourage anybody to reach out, Um, and if I could leave a final message, it is that I am so proud to be part of the Rare community, to be working for the Rare community, and fully committed to supporting and continuing to advocate on behalf of Rare.
2: And for me, probably the, the easiest way to find out more about me is is also on LinkedIn. I've got a profile that goes about 40 pages now, about one page per year. So uh, there's more information than you probably want to know on that. You know, I am very involved in a, a number of areas uh, with Acer. We are working our tails off to get a, a drug called Slyprolol approved in the United States. It's uh, approved everywhere else in the world or available everywhere else in the world for Ehlers-Danlos vascular disease. You know, it is baffling to us that we can't get it approved in the U.S. when it is clearly a a life-saving drug and and should be available to U.S. patients. Uh, Also involved, uh, biocrist we're commercializing the first uh, oral medication for hereditary angioedema, which we think is a huge step in the right direction for making patients' lives better. And somewhere in the next uh, month or two, at Trevere will roll out data from uh, the duplex trial, which will uh, hopefully move a product forward that is going to be a step forward in improving treatment for some rare uh, nephrotic diseases. And on the academic side, I'm a big supporter of the Ebola parsegian a Center for Rare and Neglected Diseases at the University of Notre Dame. I mentioned some of the academic work that I think has the potential to really have an impact on therapies in the future and um, Kevin Vaughn is one of a number of researchers doing incredible work in the Neyman-Pick Sea area. Uh, he is at uh, the Parseagent Center at Notre Dame, and uh, I like to support that uh, that program to the extent that I can as well.
0: Perfect. And I, and I can't thank you both enough for joining us on uh, Rare Voices, and um, the, the, hopefully our guests uh, will. Get all the knowledge that you've been you know embarked on them, and you know thank you so much for all of your comments, and this has been a, a lot of fun for me and and I can't wait for our guests to hear the uh, the podcast when it comes out. It's been a pleasure. yes.
1: Yes, thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to rare voices brought to you by the people of Care. If you want to hear more rare voices, go to rare there you can learn about our shows read articles from industry thought leaders and fill out a forum to be a guest on rare voices again that's rare hyphenvoices.com. voices.com i'm donovan quill co-founder of OptimiCare. care thanks for listening and don't forget to listen for more rare voices all around you each and every day